Well, welcome back to the Foreign Policy Profcast. My name is Mark Melton. I am the deputy editor here at Providence, a journal of Christianity and American foreign policy. And I am joined here today with Niall Walsh from Oxford Analytica, uh, based in the UK. And uh, Niall is a Western Europe analyst, and he's been with Oxford Analytica since October of 2018. First off, thank you so much for joining us here on the Profcast and talking us talking to us today about Boris Johnson and Iran and everything else with UK politics and how that affects American foreign policy. So my first question to you is now that Boris Johnson is the prime minister after Theresa May failed to convince parliament to support her Brexit deal, particularly because of opposition to the Irish backstop, uh, will Johnson be able to deliver Brexit as he has promised by Halloween? Well, first of all, thanks, Mark, for having me on your podcast. And I think the problem with Boris and his new administration is that it wants to pursue a very hard form of Brexit. And that is um, essentially no deal if they do not get their wish to completely abolish the Irish backstop from the withdrawal agreement. And because uh, no deal is very unpopular in Parliament, there's a there's a majority against it. Um, it's going to be very hard for Boris Johnson to um, to achieve that. And on the other hand, it's also going to be very difficult for for Boris Johnson to backtrack and, for example, pursue a softer Brexit in order to, for example, stay in power and deliver Brexit by October 31st, because um, the their government partners, the Democratic Unionist Party also opposes the backstop. So if Boris Johnson, for example, tries to rebrand the withdrawal agreement, um, the the Democratic Unionist Party won't support it. So essentially, there's just not enough support um, on uh, for for either um, for either pursuit. But of course, given Johnson's new cabinet, um, where, where 17 former ministers were replaced with with hard Brexiteers, he will try and go for no deal if the backstop is not abolished and the EU are saying that that is, is out of question. They're um, Obviously, they want to protect the Good Friday Agreement, peace in Northern Ireland. So at the moment, we've got the situation where neither side are talking with each other because their, um, their points of uh, their essential Brexit policies are so, so far apart. So what this means is that Boris Johnson and his government are ramping up no deal and um, for example um, spending for no deal preparations for no deal so that's pumping more money into the national health service it's pouring more money into into border security in the event of no deal where there's disruption at borders but at the same time behind all this of course is an elect is an election strategy Boris Johnson only has one um, one MP working as you in America you call it legislators right for members of parliament right we can call them MPs MPs and um, there's only one uh, working majority in government so he's got a razor thin majority and given the difficulties in pursuing no deal and also perhaps backtracking and even going for a softer version like the withdrawal agreement it's looking like a, a general election might be the best case and um, might be the best way to break i suppose the brexit logjam and if boris can't um and um, well one way in which um parliament could could block a no deal brexit of course and there is a parliamentary majority is if they call a, a vote of no confidence in the boris johnson government and 
a number of conservative MPs, about 20 to 30, are prepared to vote against their government because they're so hostile to a no-deal Brexit. So at the moment, essentially, Boris Johnson is trying to build up a lot of momentum. He's trying to create an optimistic image around no-deal Brexit. And in that event, he believes that by going to the polls, um, he can um, win um, He can win the election and perhaps go into government with, with, with the Brexit party um, and, and deliver Brexit that way. But at the moment, um, it's looking very difficult that um, he can achieve no deal by October or he can achieve Brexit by October 31st. But at the same time, uh, the legal default date is, of course, the 31st of October. So perhaps if there's a vote of no confidence in the government to stop no deal, that will trigger a general election and there could be a small extension to facilitate that general election. But, um, but without a doubt, the government's um, day-to-day planning is, is very much... Um, electioneering and that that's that's how it looks so we were just talking about the irish backstop could you explain what that is for our american listeners who may not follow this on a daily basis so the irish backstop is um it's a clause in the withdrawal agreement and it's basically the only issue that is blocking brexit and what it essentially is there to do is um in the case of um a no deal Brexit um, or in the case of um, a no future UK EU free trade agreement and where the UK leaves the EU with a clean break and that means leaving the EU's regulatory sphere of the customs union and the single market in order to keep the border of Northern Ireland open which is essential given the um, given the Good Friday Agreement, which is a peace treaty to end almost 30 years of violence in Northern Ireland between um, between Republican and Unionist paramilitaries in the 70s, 80s and 90s. Um, the backstop would basically keep the UK um, within the regulatory sphere of the EU if no alternative arrangements can be found to keep the border seamless, to keep it open, to keep people moving freely to keep goods moving freely and why is this um it's, it's obviously um there's a lot of criticism on on the brexit side but because they think that they're just using this issue and that the eu is using ireland in order to stop brexit and the main issue is not necessarily that um that there is currently violence in Northern Ireland, but there would be border infrastructure, for example, if this backstop wasn't here, if there was a hard Brexit and if there was no free trade between the UK and the EU. And this would be, of course, um, it's very vulnerable. It's an easy target. You don't need um, professional groups to, to, you know, take down border uh, posts or or to provoke tension and in northern ireland at the moment there is a lot of tension under the surface there hasn't been a government up there for two and a half years so and then of course um it's also very important for for the all island economy on ireland in terms of the goods between the um in terms of goods flowing between the uk between ireland and northern ireland and and so you got you got those two um that they're they're kind of the two main issues and but more so on the security front and of course after um brexit that border between northern ireland and the republic of ireland will now become an eu border so to speak so this is why of course the the customs union the single market plays such a such a critical role and 
you focus a lot on nationalism and populism and how did those forces play into Brexit? Um, well, one of the major things about the rise of national populism in Europe is that um, cent centrist parties, centrist political groups are now adopting some populist policies in order to um, in order to reclaim lost support or in order to kind of reduce the appeal of, of, of fringe parties. And one of those, of course, is the Conservative Party of now, um, the current administration is now far more right wing, far more populist than, than, for example, the previous administration and administrations before that. And of course, that is in order to um, to stem the, the flow of support for the Brexit party, which which is the populist party was for it, it used to be, um, I guess their leader used to be the leader of not uh, Nigel Farage of the UK Independence Party, which um, and Nigel Farage has probably been the most effective UK politician in the last 15 years, and he was instrumental to Brexit. In terms terms of in, in terms of society in general i think it was it, it was populist in the sense that it was anti-establishment the brexit vote it wasn't so much um anti-eu but it was really anti-establishment politics and this was an opportunity because of course the majority of conservative mps and the majority of labor mps were against Brexit, they voted to remain in the in the 2016 referendum. So this is an opportunity for for many voters, especially in more economically deprived constituencies, to vote against um, against the established parties for the first time in 20 or 30 years. Because what we have to remember is that over the past 20, 30 years, the Conservatives and Labour have gradually become less about um, identity-based politics and more about consensus-based politics, and they've come more to the centre, more to the mainstream. And it's been much harder to say distinguish between the two parties than, um, than it previously was. So Brexit was an opportunity to really, um, to really vote against the establishment, to vote against London, and we are seeing the consequences um, of that. And, and one of those, as I just pointed out, is the uh is is the conservatives move to, to the right and more identity-based politics what will happen with labor well they're realizing that many of their traditional um voters um reject their rejected their move to the center okay in the 1990s they were still voting for them under tony blair but they had nowhere else to go they had no other alternatives but now um traditional left-wing voters, I'd say right across Europe, they're more socially conservative than, I suppose, voters of, um, than, than say, cosmopo liberal cosmopolitan voters, students, who are, um, who, who now represent a really important um, uh, aspect um, of, of the Labour Party in terms of their appeal. So trying to, you've got these two these two groups of voters that seem very, very difficult to bring together and please and vote at the same time. And I think we're seeing this is now uh, emerging as a serious uh, issue for Labour. And now they're losing their traditional supporters to the Brexit party. And what's quite interesting is if the Conservatives manage to um, to reduce the appeal of the Brexit party, what they do is they take some traditional Labour voters in in leave constituencies in those more economically deprived areas so this is a challenge facing the left but without a doubt the role that populism plays a really fundamental role in brexit 
And we're seeing that more so than anything in how it's changing both of the two uh, largest parties. And with that, you're talking about the conservatives trying to take votes away from the Brexit party. And if there is a general election, like you like you mentioned earlier, uh, there's this talk about like a four way race with the liberal Democrats, labor, Brexit and the conservatives. And in a first past the post system, that's kind of hard to have multiple parties like that. So how do you think a general election would work out in the UK with this, you know, four-way race yeah it's all it all depends on um when the election takes place that that's really crucial and what the circumstances are ideally um the conservatives will not at the moment they do not want an election until brexit is delivered um but of course um that might not be possible if there if there is an issue with the october 31st deadline in terms of what I previously mentioned about the parliamentary no confidence vote, but they will, but they're already electioneering. So the chances are that they will have some momentum in the case of an election and how it'll work out is I think the remain parties and that's, I'm talking about the liberal Democrats, the green party, applied Cymru in, in, in Wales, the Welsh party, the new change UK party, I think they'll be willing to lose seats in order to uh, maximise the vote of the largest Remain party. So that's what happened recently in, in last week, last Thursday in a Welsh by-election. Um, Plaid Cymru, the Greens and um, and Change UK didn't, did, didn't run. So in order to in order for the so so that the social or the liberal democrats could win the election so that that's certainly one strategy on the remain side for labor it's very difficult what they'll do because they're still quite ambiguous over brexit they want a second referendum if it's if there's going to be a no deal brexit but they're not saying yet what they would do if they were in government and brexit hadn't been resolved suggesting that they might try to negotiate for a soft Brexit. So it's very difficult to know what they would do. In terms of the Conservatives and the Brexit Party, at the moment the Brexit Party is trying to distance themselves from the Conservatives because they are now losing support in the polls as a result of, of the rise of Boris Johnson and um, and his administration. Um, and we're already seeing in the polls that you know the Brexit Party support is 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 halved. So Nigel Farage is trying to say, look, we can't trust you can't trust Boris Johnson. He decided at the last minute to become a Brexiteer. He's a late convert. He's made promises before that he can't be delivered. So at the moment he's trying to separate himself from the Conservatives. But certainly in the case of an election, and if both parties had the support. Um, uh, had enough support, if one of the parties won the election and collectively they had the support to form a government, I think that would be far more ideal for the Conservative Party because I think they'd be able to uh, deliver um, a lot more of their policies. I think in general, um, working with the Brexit Party would be a lot easier than it would be working with the Democratic Unionist Party, which has a different agenda. It's more about Northern Ireland. It's more about identity. It's more about the border rather than Brexit and UK mainland politics um, per se. Uh, I think if there's an election after no deal, um, for example, in November, uh, I think that would really finish the Brexit party because 
that's basically the raison d'etre is to be is to be is is because Brexit hasn't been delivered. And what you'd have is about 30 35 percent of the population now will support no deal if it means Brexit gets delivered. So what you could have is the Conservatives uh, winning um, as the only no deal party, so to speak. Um, and um, and then the, the the remain vote being split between maybe Labour, the Lib Dems, and, and maybe the Scottish Nationalist Party. Um, so there's there's a lot of different scenarios out there at the moment. Uh, what what is clear is that the population in general is is becoming uh, is becoming more polarized. You know, taken out to the extremes, and the centre ground is 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 um, is dwindling. So more and more people want no deal, and more and more people want a revocation of Article Fifty, which basically means cancelling Brexit. So um, I think in that sense. Um, Boris Johnson and his message, his clear Brexit message, will um, be more appealing to voters, not by an awful lot, but will be more appealing to voters than than Theresa May's um, Brexit policy. So I think um, I think under Boris Johnson, the Conservatives, their election prospects are better than they were under Theresa May. And I think that's one of the reasons why so many people in the Conservative Party, so many MPs, got behind Boris. They know that he's unpredictable um, and that he um, and and that he's not always honest, but they know that he can he can win an election and save the party. And I think probably um the big issue I think will be with the Labour Party, because if they if there is an election, they'll have to have they have a manifesto and they'll have to clearly stipulate their Brexit intentions. The party at the moment is declining in the polls. They've also got all these anti-Semitism allegations to deal with. Um, but there's a lot of coverage over here in the UK about it. I'm not sure if you're familiar about it in the US. So I think the Conservatives also. Um, you know, there's an opportunity for them to capitalise on 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 Labour's issues and the general kind of growing discontentment with with, with Jeremy Corbyn's leadership. Yes, we've covered some of the anti-Semitism in the Labour Party on Providence, a couple of articles, and so it's something we hear about occasionally over here. I don't know about mainstream media how often they cover it versus other issues. The other question I wanted to bring up here is the SNP, the uh, Scottish Nationalist Party, and their drive for a independent Scotland, and how does Brexit play into that? Or also more specifically, like what are the chances of Scotland becoming an independent country? So I think um, without a doubt, the political move for independence within the Scottish Nationalist Party has has grown since Brexit referendum. Of course, I think, um, don't quote me, around 64%, it could have been 65, it could have been 63, but I think around 64% of Scottish people voted to remain in the EU in 2016. But strangely enough, um, the polls on, um, like opinion polls on on the prospect of, of independence um, haven't actually changed that much. So there's still uh, a slight majority that want to remain in inside of the United Kingdom. But of course, this is also changing now because the risk of no deal is increasing. So up until a few months ago, people thought that no deal wouldn't happen, that there would be an agreement between the moderate, the political moderates, um, and, and, and maybe that had an impact on voting intentions. But now that the risk of no deal is increasing, political pressure 
within the within the Scottish Nationalist Party, which is the largest party, of course, in Scotland, is um, is increasing. And I think um, before the next Scottish elections, which uh, which are in nine, uh, 1922, 2022, um, I think uh, the SNP leader Nicola Sturgeon will make um, an announcement on independence unless there's some radical change say for example with um with brexit um there's a few things like it's even with no deal brexit we don't know what implications no deal will have yet of course everything is pointing towards um towards the 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 negative um issues or, or the negative impacts but of course that's on a spectrum there's really bad or there's maybe you know the, the short-term chaos or else there's you know um or else is this this could be something that could last for the next 10-15 years in terms of in terms of recession in terms of slow and growth in terms of um in terms of slower investment in general in terms of the pound so we don't know um what implications actually a no deal brexit would have and also scottish people uh, will also be looking at 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 the difficulties um, that the UK is facing negotiating withdrawal from the EU and they might be conscious that negotiating withdrawal from the UK might also be tricky while simultaneously trying to negotiate um, accession to the EU and all the different issues that involves whether it's around the border, whether it's around a new currency um, and then of course joining all the different regulatory um, uh aspects of the eu so um but without a doubt it's risen also within a crisis or should i say never let a crisis go to waste and boris johnson is certainly um is certainly very aware of the of of the damage that no deal could cause to the union in northern ireland also as um, as well as scotland and i think in the short term you could see um, a lot of money being pumped into the devolved regions, which um, which could be a good thing, you know. I mean, in in another situation, another context, they might not get this level of attention. But now that the now that London is so concerned that no one wants to be remembered as the prime minister, the last prime minister of the United Kingdom. So in the short term, I think. Um, I think Boris Johnson really tried to. He was in Northern Ireland and Scotland last week, and I think he'll really try to um, try to, to woo a lot of a lot of people up there, um, and uh, and try to you know with, with money with, with maybe more devolved powers, etc. But um, overall, I think that um, that yes, Nicola Sturgeon will make a call for a referendum, but. By, it's by no means sure that that, well, that 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 the referendum or that the vote will be to to lead the United Kingdom. And so pivoting from the UK politics a little bit to kind of the American foreign policy perspective on this. In the US, we are talking a bit about free trade deal possibility with the UK, and especially this administration seems keen on that, whereas a Democrat, it seems kind of ambiguous, I think, where they stand, or it might depend on particular members of the Congress uh, for the Democrats. But what are the prospects of a US-UK free trade deal after a Brexit? It's quite uh, interesting, because um, 
the prospects for a UK US free trade agreement will rise in the political agenda in the UK if there's no deal. Because in order to, you know, um, compensate for the economic chaos in other areas, a free trade deal with the US um, is, is very, very appealing to, to to the Boris Johnson administration and, 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 you know, all his officials and advisors. But at the same time, there's a very strong Irish-American lobby in the United States um, that's, that has an impact on foreign um, affair issues. And Nancy Pelosi is recently in Ireland, and she said that there will be no free trade agreement with the UK if, if if Brexit poses any threat to the Good Friday Agreement, and no deal is something that um, that many, including Democrats, believe would pose um, a threat to the Good Friday Agreement because you wouldn't have the backstop, you wouldn't have uh, a UK-EU free trade agreement to protect free movement of people and goods in Northern Ireland. And of course, um, I think um, also in the US, I mean, in order for a UK-US free trade deal to be ratified, it would need uh, Congress's approval. And over the years, well, in the 90s, there was bipartisan support for the Good Friday Agreement. And many of those congressmen are still um, around. So I think um, that's one issue to look out for. In terms of, in terms of the, the mechanics of the trade, uh, I think like the US clearly has much greater leverage in this regard. I mean, a free trade deal with the UK wouldn't do an awful lot to the US economy. Um, it doesn't account for very much of its of its total imports. Um, so uh, and 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 uh, President Trump knows how important politically a free trade agreement is, and perhaps economically is to Boris Johnson. You know, to prove his Brexit credentials that um, he can deliver Brexit and that he can strike a great trade deal with a non-EU um, with with a non-EU power. And given this, uh, you know, Trump and and his negotiating team. Um, we'll, we'll have a list of demands, and if those demands are not met, they're not just going to um, just they're not just going to make concessions in order to in order to have a free trade agreement. I think there's a number of issues that are also um, very sensitive, and it's not so much uh, it, with regards to tariffs because there's already quite a, uh, um, an established trading relationship between the UK and the US, but it's more so in terms of regulation. And of course, one of the big issues in the UK is is would would the National Health Service be part of would be part of um, of a free trade agreement? And under no circumstances would would Boris Johnson be able to countenance um, to countenance that? But of course, um, Trump could say, well, it, well, he already did say that it will be part of it, but then he backtracked. But it's unclear in terms of that. There's also other sensitivities that will be um, that will get in the way of really a substantial trade agreement that will have any um you know economic substance substance so what you're probably more like what we're probably more likely to see is something like um a smaller trade agreement that's on a case-by-case issue or that's on kind of non-controversial um goods 
and then um, Boris could might might be able to sell it back at home, saying, "Look, this is a stepping stone to perhaps further success. We've already got something by October thirty first or by December. Look what this can look what this will enable us to, to achieve in the future." Um, but something substantial is 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 highly unlikely, and I don't think Boris Johnson will be in a position to just give away any kind of national um, issues of, of national sensitivity just for um, just to have a free trade deal with the US because that would be like electorally very damaging and it would, it would really strengthen the opposition because like for example the Labour Party their their strongest issue um, electoral issues the NHS if you start playing with something like that you're just giving them an opportunity to to win support and if I'm not mistaken when uh, the uh, British were asked what their top achievements since World War II, didn't they list NHS, the National Health Service, as one of their top achievements? Absolutely, because in the post-war period, unlike today, a lot of the rebuilding of the economy focused on on nationalization, on you know building up kind of national models, and and the NHS is certainly one of them. And despite all its flaws, it's um it's still you know it's an extremely prized asset. And even at the moment, well, Boris Johnson announced yesterday and that he's going to pump an additional 1.85 billion into the NHS. So he's clearly seeing this as an important election issue for him. So while at the moment he's concentrating on the NHS to then sell it in a US-UK free trade agreement would be would be like suicidal. And there's been a lot of talk out of the UK about creating a global Britain that would trade more with countries like China, India, the US and other places that the perception or the rhetoric is that the EU has prevented the UK from being able to create these types of trade deals. So uh, Kind of looking at, for instance, China, are they going to be able to do much more trade with China or is that going to run against some other you know, relationships with the U.S., for instance? Yeah, exactly. So if the idea that just to give some context, I mean, one of the main reasons for the creation of the EU is to be able to compete as a global power with, with the Soviet Union, with Russia and with China. Um, sorry, with Soviet Union, the United States and with um, and with China. <laughs> Um, and of course, the UK. Um, I mean, its budget, its capacity is considerably weaker than that of the United States or China. So inevitably, in the case of oh, after Brexit, it's not going to exactly become a global power that's on a level playing field with China and the US. So it'll inevitably have to take sides. And of course, currently with the Boris Johnson administration, and just in terms of the Brexit divisions more generally, I mean. The uh, Brexiteers are 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 very um, wedded by the idea of a special relationship between the UK and the US. So it's very likely that um, that you know the United Kingdom will fall into will fall under the wing of the United States under Boris Johnson administration post Brexit. And of course, that has um, that has implications. For example, perhaps for trade with China, but also in issues like Huawei on on the next generation and um, technology, and um, on these kind of issues. Also, I think we might discuss it in a bit uh, in terms of relations with Iran. But certainly, while Trump is in is in the White House, and given that you know trade is is really his biggest issue and um, his biggest foreign policy issue, that. That the UK, um, in terms of who it trades with post 
um, post-Brexit will be inf- could be influenced um, somewhat by that, particularly regarding the you know the the rivals of of the United States in the world, the countries like Iran, countries like China, um, and yeah, um, I was going to mention another point, but it's just gone from my head. Oh, it was um, yeah, I think it, again, it all depends um, how Brexit pans out because. I think if there's a no deal Brexit, there's obviously going to be an urgency to get it free to get some kind of agreement with the EU because it is the UK's closest um, closest trading partner, biggest trading partner, um, and easiest block to trade with given the geographical proximity. So I think that will take up all um, all attention that and perhaps the US. Whereas I think if there's um, some Brexit agreement and there is uh, um, at least an implementation. If there's, if there's a Brexit deal, there's an implementation period of 18 months, which basically means that the status quo in terms of regulation continues until December 20, uh, 2021. And I think that will give the UK more time to perhaps um, identify um, a, a larger group of, of future trading partners. But if there's no deal, I think the immediate priority will be with the EU and the United States. So a lot uh, rides on, on what happens with Brexit. And you had mentioned just briefly there Huawei and the 5G network. I was in Scotland about a little bit more than a month ago, and that was one of the you know news items when I was there was the rollout of 5G by Huawei in some of the cities. I believe they were doing it in Edinburgh. But the where does that stand? Where what is Huawei doing in the UK right now, and how is that affecting US UK relationship? Well, at the moment, there was leaks in June that um, that the UK had officially accepted or had officially um, offered Huawei to uh, to be part of the future of five G, uh, the building of a five G infrastructure. But um, well, after that leak happened. Uh, one of the ministers was sacked, who was apparently responsible for the leak, Gavin Williamson. But since then, there's been no, um, there's been no uh, mention of it in the press. It seems to be something that has gone on hold since, um, because this happened at the time in Theresa May's um, tenure was coming to an end, and Boris Johnson was coming in. So at the moment, there, um, the situation is extremely quiet in terms of is Huawei actually going to play a role or not? I'd imagine Boris Johnson will be um, a lot more um, conservative in his approach than perhaps Theresa May in terms of giving Huawei an opportunity to build 5G, especially now that he's moving the UK closer towards the US in terms of um, in terms of a number of issues. So to be honest, it's one that hasn't received a lot of attention in, in recent in the last you know month or two. Um, the UK government has never officially confirmed that it has given Huawei this opportunity. And um, and now it's um, whether Boris Johnson will be Basically influenced by um, by by President Trump, whether President Trump's influence and Boris Johnson will kind of um, go to cover all these kind of issues, or whether the UK um, administration can kind of deal with certain issues separately. But given the the, the nature of Huawei, given um, and, and given you know the opposition in the US, I would think 
that um, the prospects for Huawei in the UK um, aren't as good as it would have been under Theresa May. But we're, but I'm not sure when there will be a government announcement on this issue. There isn't at the moment. Um, MPs are away on holiday, so it mightn't be something that 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 you know, and that takes board again until September October. And you mentioned Iran couple of minutes ago, and uh, Iran seized a UK-flagged oil tanker in the Persian Gulf, and the Royal Navy had warned the Iranians not to seize the ship, but they did it anyways. So uh, a couple of questions related to that. How is this news playing out in the UK, and how is the Johnson administration responding to this crisis? Uh, so in the UK, there, I mean, the, the attention towards the story has kind of died down in the last week, it received a lot of attention when when Iran seized the the Sten Empiro, the UK flag tanker in, in in the Gulf, in the Strait of Hormuz. Um, but it, it seems to have died down a lot. However, um, at the moment we're at a situation where both tankers remain in the well, the UK tanker um, is still in Iranian hands, and the Grace One, the Iranian oil tanker that that was seized, I think on July fourth off the coast of Gibraltar, I think is still in UK hands. And there hasn't been any uh, progress, I believe, in terms of um, in terms of um, kind of a, a quid pro quo uh, a swap of those tankers, giving them back and settling this um, dispute. There's the main kind of focus in the UK has been on the degradation of the Royal Marines, in the sense that um, there's far fewer warships um, today than there was, say, in the 1990s. There, a number of them are spend vast amounts of time throughout the year being uh, being serviced, not in operation. And of course, this isn't a quick fix. So, of course. The plans are to increase uh, defense spending over over the next few years, but this is also a, a, a really serious situation in the short term. So it's essentially given the picture that the UK can no longer defend itself, its shipping interests in the world, and it needs to rely on, on, on allies. And then the big, of course, uh, challenge with that is, well, who do they rely on? They can't, they, they can't um, you know, work with, the Europeans and the US simultaneously, given the divisions over the Iranian nuclear deal, the Europeans want to um, want to separate themselves from the US on, on on these kind of issues, especially if it's um, somewhat related to the Iran nuclear deal or Iran in general, because Iran, the Iranians will see this as a provocation. They'll see the Europeans siding with the US, for example, if they have some alliance. Um, a European-American alliance to protect shipping in the Strait of Hormuz. And of course, even trying to get the Europeans to join uh, the UK in terms of bolstering up um, shipping security in the Gulf is very difficult because, well, in general, European militaries are really depleted, but it's also a very sensitive subject, say, in a country like Germany, where if you mention the defense or military, I mean, the memories of, of Nazi Germany come up straight away. And that's particularly uh, among left-wing parties, and one of those, the Social Democrats, the biggest left-wing party, um, is um, is currently in government. So it's very difficult for Germany to, you know, to, to take a direct line in this. And of course, at the same time, um, the Europeans are so concerned 
about the Iran nuclear deal, and they want they, they want to um that they want to protect that. So even a European, you know, security alliance in in the Gulf would would probably be seen as a provocation by Iran, and what this means for the Iranian nuclear deal and all that. There, I mean, that's that's a real big concern in Berlin and in Paris. So I think what it basically means is the UK is kind of stuck between powers at the moment. It's in a it's in a situation where it can't go it alone in the world in something like um, defense and in something like um, uh, maritime security and it needs allies, but but positioning themselves um, are uh, working with those allies has consequences. Mm-hmm. Where do you go with the Europeans? This could be opposed by US, but by, by, by the US who, um, you know, for example, in the case of a trade deal, well, you have to take on board our um, our policy on Iran, and then that really creates obstacles in terms of um, then working with the Europeans. So it has all these implications. So I think at at the moment the situation is kind of in a I guess what they call say for someone who goes into hospital when they're you know critical but stable. It's a kind of a critically stable uh, situation where I think if boat tankers were um, returned, I think that would solve the issue for the moment. And those tankers were um, were taken under previous administration. And I think, especially when the Iranians took the UK tanker, they knew that Theresa May was essentially weak. She was a lame duck prime minister, and maybe they used her as an easy target in order to to, to make a point. And they might now take someone like like Boris Johnson more uh, seriously. And also, the other big change, I think, is that Jeremy Hunt, the former uh, foreign minister, was 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 really, um, you know, he wanted to preserve solidarity with the Europeans on the Iranian nuclear deal and whatever that meant. Um, whereas now he's been replaced by a, by a more hardline uh, individual, uh, Dominic Rapp, who's the former Brexit secretary under Theresa May, who resigned in opposition to the withdrawal agreement. And he is saying that, um, that the UK or that the Iranian tanker should not be returned to the UK because it was uh, seized in um, it was unlawfully seized. Um, so at the moment he doesn't seem to be too much up for a compromise. And I think the big risk then is if the Iranians, by accident or on purpose, do create another like provocation in the Gulf, how will this administration react? And that's I think that's the key issue. How will if another UK tanker is seized, um, because there's no real protection for for UK shipping in the Gulf? Um, what will how will um, how will um, Boris Johnson react? But I think Iranian the Iranian strategy all along seems to have been, you know, they'll respond aggressively, but they might not provoke something so right the uk tanker or the uk sees the iranian tanker now the iranians sees the uk tanker maybe they'll leave it at that but the big i think the big concern is what happens if there's another escalation in tensions and how will boris johnson administration react and that's and that could be a crisis point for the government well, Niall, thanks so much for speaking with us on the Foreign Policy Profcast and explaining everything on the other side of the pond and for the American audience here to understand, you know, how are things working out with the Trump administration and the new uh, prime minister of Great Britain? 
Thanks, Mark. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to The Provcast, a regular podcast of Providence, a journal of Christianity and American foreign policy. You can find us online at ProvidenceMag.com, follow us on Twitter at Prov Magazine, and download this podcast on iTunes and SoundCloud or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening. <laughs>